внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. A rigged election, street protests as the civil society comes of age, a brutal crackdown on dissent by an increasingly desperate dictator, a brazen act of air piracy and kidnapping, allegations of death squads, and successive Western waves of sanctions. From August 2020 to August 2021, everything changed in Belarus. As Alexander Lukashenko faced the most serious crisis of his nearly three decades in power, and with Vladimir Putin's Russia waiting in the wings to exploit upheaval, it's a crisis with major geopolitical consequences. Today, we'll look back at Belarus's year of living dangerously and look ahead at what comes next. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams-Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the great city of Miami in the great state of Florida is someone who's kept a close eye on Belarus from both inside and outside the U.S. government. David Kramer served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor in the administration of George W. Bush. He also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia and Ukraine. He's also been President of Freedom House and a Senior Director at the McCain Institute. These days, David's a Senior Fellow and Lecturer at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Thanks very much, Brian. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. And also joining us from Oslo is veteran Belarusian journalist Franak Badurka, an advisor to Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Welcome back to the podcast, Franak. Happy to be with you again. Happy to have you. Um, I wanted to start out by just looking at the big picture, about what's changed over the last year in Belarus, and then drill down deeper into the specifics. Um, I see basically Belarus changing in two very important ways in the last year. First, in addition to becoming even more autocratic and repressive, the regime of Alexander Lukashenko has moved more decisively into Russia's orbit. Prior to August 2020, the Belarusian regime was trying to keep its options open with the West. Lukashenko was resisting Moscow's attempts to open an airbase in Belarus, distancing himself from Vladimir Putin's conflict with the West and attempting to be an honest broker in the war in Ukraine. Today, Lukashenko has gone all in with Putin's Russia, has joined Moscow's conflict with the West and is making threatening moves towards Ukraine and appears to be ready to allow a permanent Russian troop presence in Belarus. But the second important way that Belarus has changed over the past year is that civil society has become more emboldened and public opinion has become more pro-Western. Due to Putin's support for Lukashenko, the Kremlin leader's popularity in Belarus is declining, while ordinary Belarusians are increasingly looking west for inspiration. The battle lines are now clear. The Putin-Lukashenko axis of autocrats versus the westernizing Belarusian public. Franek, you're pretty close to this. What, what, that, that's how I see what's changed, but you're closer to it than me, obviously. What do you see as changing in Belarus in the last year? What has this past year meant for Belarus? So the, the only constant we have is Lukashenko, and uh, Lukashenko was always in Kremlin's orbit, nothing changed here. Of course, uh, some groups of his officials were playing, you know, with the West. Uh, groups led by Mackey was mm. was trying to uh, justify Lukashenko's policies, um, all his crimes against uh, his opponents. But what what happened in 2020? Everything became clear. Lukashenko doesn't want to reform the country. Lukashenko will do everything in order to stay in power. And Belarusians don't want to stay in Lukashenko's model of the state anymore. So we have the new quality of civil society. You're right here. We have a big threat to Belarus independence. It's right. But we also have um, mobilized international community for the first time in the history and ready to help Belarusian people in their fight for democracy, which is a very new um, factor, which is very powerful and which also impacts something which we call split of elites. Because many people around Lukashenko 
especially the younger ones, they don't see themselves, uh, um, uh, they don't want to share responsibility for all the crimes Lukashenko commit, and they don't see the future for themselves in this model Lukashenko has built for 28 years. And I think this split of elites, this is something which which will actually become the decisive factor for changes in Belarus in the next months, I think. I'd like to drill a little bit deeper into that, but I want to go to go go to David because this split in the leads is actually very interesting to me. But David, I want to I want to jump to you because you've been you've been watching Belarus for quite a long time. Um, but as I've said, both from within and and outside the U.S. government, what do how do you see the last year? What do you see changing? It certainly has gotten uglier in the sense of uh, the worst crackdown inside the country, I think, that we have seen in all the 27 years that Lukashenko has clung to power. Um, and the use of the security services in such brutal ways um, is, I think, worse than we have seen. It is not to suggest that it has been a paradise in years past. That That's not the case, obviously. But the extent to which he will go in order to cling to power is, I think, a little different. It's a matter of a degree, but significant degree. Um, I, I think we've also seen just unbelievable courage and bravery on the part of the people of Belarus going out in the streets against tremendous risk to their freedom, to their lives, um, and facing beatings and torture and imprisonment. Um, th this has been pretty remarkable and I think an inspiration to all of us, not just those who follow Belarus, but to democracy advocates and activists around the world. I think we've also seen the dropping of illusions on the part of the West, uh, where the West no longer thinks that after this round of sanctions, maybe we can go back to working with this regime. I think those days are finally over. They should have been over a long time ago. Um, it's sort of like, if you'll pardon the expression, Lucy and the football, where we kept right. imposing sanctions, Lukashenko would do the minimum and, and the football would be pulled and we'd fall flat on our backs. I think those days are over. So I, I think we have seen a, a permanent shift in mm. attitudes on the part of the West and that's healthy. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I see, I, I don't think that the Lucy and the football routine with, we went through with Lukashenko all these years was a result of naivete. I mean, I think there was serious geopolitical calculations there. I think they were trying to make sure that Belarus didn't turn into a military platform for, 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 for Putin, which he was clearly trying to turn it into a, a de facto extension of the Russia's uh, Western military district, which has very, very, very security implications for our allies in Lithuania, Poland, and Latvia, and, and therefore for all of NATO and for the United States. I, 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 I don't think there was naivete, but now that path is clearly not open to us, um, regardless of, 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 the, of the motivation for it. I think you're also right. The mask has come off now. I mean, we're seeing the, the, the ugliness we're seeing. I mean, the way I kind of wrote this in my notes is the Lukashenko regime has gone even more rogue because it was always pretty rogue. Um, but the, you know, the torture, the de facto hijacking of a Ryanair flight in the, in the, in the kidnapping of Roman Protasevich, the death squads. I mean, I wrote about this in the Atlanta Council last week. I mean, there are actually Belarusian death squads operating apparently abroad right now, if we can believe what happened in Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, weaponizing the migrants. So this is – the mask has come off. I want to return to Fronik on this splits in the elite because this is very interesting to me, Fronik. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit because I'm I, – I, I want to drill into that. Uh, look, this is what I feel. Uh, I feel like the process is happening behind the scene. Uh, why, why I said that? First of all, Lukashenko is constantly speaking about betrayal. Betrayal, betrayal, you know, he's meeting his official Siloviki in his own room and saying, I hope you will not betray me. Second, we are constantly receiving messages from the people around him on the high positions uh, who say, look, uh, we don't want to, to share responsibility for the crimes and for the murders. We are with you, but you understand that we can't... Uh, quit uh, because we have businesses, families, etc. And um, uh, finally, we see uh, more and more signals uh, from the people on the ground, especially uh, police officers who, for example, write protocols, you know, and they, they say that um, we are with you till the moment X, till the bright moment comes. Uh, 
businesses that were sanctioned by Lukashenko, they are asking for the way out. Uh, how can they get out of the sanction list as well? Even those oligarchs who were sanctioned by, by EU, you know, even those who are the most loyalist to Lukashenko, they're also very unhappy with the status quo. Many of those um, nomenclatura members uh, who had a contract, social contract with Lukashenko for many years, right now they uh, are deprived of the influence to the decision-making process. Lukashenko is living like in a bunker with the five people around him. And those people who were dependent on him and who were always uh, getting some resources and uh, some sources of funding, right now they, they are um, um, out of the game. So all of this create the, the, the needed um, uh, moment of the split of elites, and it's up to us to, to solve it and to propose them the solution and to, to offer them the better alternative than Lukashenko does. Uh, David, I want to ask you to put your government hat on here. <laughs> Imagine you're back in one of your old jobs at, at, at state. Um, how can, how should and how can the United States and the allies, uh, given what Franek just told us, which I frankly didn't know, and I think this is really interesting, what what can we do given the fact also that yesterday we just learned that, uh, apparently that the U.S. Embassy in Minsk is going to be downsized and Julie Fisher is not going to be uh, given her credentials as ambassador is what I've, I've, I've been hearing. Um, so what can, the, what can the United States do in this situation? Well, back in March of 2008, uh, when we engaged in a tit-for-tat ambassador expulsion, they also forced us to go down to five Americans at the embassy at that mm -hmm. time, and that's where we're going back to, apparently. We, we haven't had a large embassy presence uh, for since then, really. And it's no surprise that they aren't going to uh, grant Julie Fisher, the, the U.S. ambassador to Belarus, her credentials. Uh, she was not going back, uh, or going there, I should say, not, right. not going there anytime soon because of the situation. And I salute what she has done and what mm -hmm. she has said. She's done all the right things, including going to Vilnius to meet with Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya and Franek and others, uh, gone to Poland and, and other places in Europe. And that sends all the right signals. And let me also salute the administration for uh, the meeting that uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya had with uh, President Biden. That was extremely important. And it came uh, with, with some disappointment earlier the week before when there was fear that the president would not meet with her. But then the White House did issue the invitation and they met. And that was extremely important signal to send uh, that the United States, along with uh, virtually every other European leader who has met with her, um, it, it recognizes her as the duly elected leader as the transitional figure and does not accept the legitimacy of Alexander Lukashenko in the least. And given these splits in the elite that Franek is talking about, what, 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 how, how should the United States and our allies uh, handle this, but use this? To, to keep going after any officials involved in gross human rights abuses or corruption, but to also indicate to those who are ready to do the right thing that they will not be subject to such sanctions and, in fact, might be provided some support, either financial or otherwise, uh, if, if they have to flee the country because of concern for their safety um, or if they stay in the country but but support the, the democratic forces. So I think, I think it is important for the West, Europeans and Americans, to try to drive further wedges in the security forces. The only reason they're staying with him is, well, two reasons. One is money and the other is fear. Um, and, and so if we can if we can uh, counter those, um, then I think there's a likelihood that we can see the support for him within the security services start start to shrivel. Sonic, is there anything you'd add to that? I mean, what, what David says, the way we see the, the, what the West should do in this situation. I mean, how you spoke of the the unprecedented inter international solidarity behind Belarusian civil society right now. Are, what, what more would you like to see coming from the West? I know you're, you've just got back from a very successful trip to Washington with Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. Um, you had a White House visit with, with, with President Biden. You met She met with Secretary Blinken. Um, the the uh, Congressional Caucus, the Friends of Belarus, was launched at a, at a wonderful event at the Lithuanian Embassy. Um, what? How happy are you with the Western response, and what would you like to see happen that's not been happening yet? We are very happy with the U.S. visit and London visit, which happened the next day after return from the U.S. Um, perhaps it's a bit uh, belated, because if it would happen in the fall, 
it will be much more powerful but it's uh, uh, um, it is what it is you know and um, I think uh, sanctions that were imposed after this visit by the US and UK are very important because they create huge pressure on the mm -hmm. regime but also the wallets of Lukashenko also those oligarchs who yep. were loyal to Lukashenko to the very end point and what we have to do right now we have to make sure this pressure is constant so we mm -hmm. should keep the regime in the constant stress Mm -hmm. Yeah, you. I, I, I know you uh, You and, and Svetlana Tikhonovskaya basically presented a, a sanctions you would like to see um, from from the U.S. and the allies when you were here in Washington. Um, did you get what you wanted? I mean, I looked at those sanctions, and I'll have to say I was a little bit impressed, and I, wanna, I was pretty impressed, and I want to get David's take on this too, but did you get what you wanted in terms of the, the sanctions, this round of sanctions, or do you, do you still want to see more? Uh, you know, we, we still don't know how the sanctions will work, you know, and um, for example, Yara, it's a Norwegian company uh, which is uh, working with the Belarus Kali for many, many years. Yeah. I can't still understand if the international sanctions imposed by the United States, they will touch Yara's contracts. Because there are questions like, um, are, are secondary sanctions in game here? Uh, what types of contracts are touched? what types of potash are touched by British sanctions. So there are so many uh, unclear things here. It, it, it will take some time to understand how the sanctions impact. But we already feel uh, the, the impact on Lukashenko himself. His eight-hour speech uh, a few <laughs> days ago, it showed that he's very worried. He's very inconfident. He's very insecure. And there is, uh, it, it seems like the regime feels very fragile. Which 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 uh, looks very uh, uh, positive to us, you know. It means that the, yeah. even sanctions with the loopholes and with so many questions and and and, and uh, clarity, they even in this this form they they work. Um, I I I'm very happy about British sanctions. Let me mm -hmm. add here, because many oil products actually are um, uh, oil 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 products are using uh, British companies and British ports, uh, and if the sanctions will work in full, it will be huge heat on the oil, which which is monopolized by Lukashenko, his family, and cronies. Yeah, that that press conference was. I mean, it was even unhinged by Lukashenko's standards, and that is a pretty high bar to clear. I mean, just a few tidbits from that thing. I mean, in addition to calling Britain an American lapdog, um, he, he he said that the 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 uh, the forced the basic hijacking of that Ryanair flight was done on the West's orders, um, if you can believe that. Um, and he also said that he was going to resign. What did you make of that? If you if you ask me, I, I I already stopped commenting on Lukashenko because sometimes I feel like there is no logic behind it. Uh, um, you know, there are many things subconsciousness, some conscious that he's just um, sharing with the public opinion and checking how people will react. I think he constantly repeated that thesis, the narrative about the dialogue. Mm -hmm. I'm ready to talk to you. Um, I'm ready for dialogue. But in this dialogue concept, there is no people as the counterpart right he is the dialogue only between him and the western and the west uh, so he's ready for trade but not uh, but only with uh, with the lithuania poland the eu and the us and um, i think it's also where we saw the man who lost control over the situation and desperately trying to find a way out of of what um, mm. of what happened um, i i don't really know what he meant you know what um, uh, by, by telling all, all these things but um, and I don't really I'm not sure if we should actually discuss you know the content mm. yeah no I mean he seems to be trying to negotiate his I, I, I interpreted it may correct me if I'm wrong my interpretation was he was speaking to the Russians basically and he was basically trying to negotiate his political future with the Russians. I think that's what's going on. I know he seems to be trying to secure some kind of dynastic succession to his son Victor. Um, I, I've, I've seen some signals of that, but you're 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 right. I mean, he's he's so unhinged that it is kind of hard to to to, to parse what he's saying. David, a couple things. What did you make of that that eight-hour press conference? It was it, which was it was really a doozy. And also, you testified not long ago on the Hill. 
um, calling for sanctions. Um, did you get what you wanted in this round? I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad we saw Gutsedev sanctioned because you have to start sanctioning the Russian wallets on this. On, the, on this, I'm glad finally that Belruscali was finally sanctioned. I don't know what took us so long, but what's your? How do you? How do you see this round of sanctions in terms of uh, what you were calling for on the Hill not not so long ago? Well, first on on uh, the performance on Monday, I, I would describe it as the rantings of a lunatic um, who is completely divorced from reality. And, and this is not just since August of last year. Um, if you look at what he was saying about the coronavirus pandemic and all his recommendations there, um, it, it, this is a guy who increasingly, I think, has become unhinged from reality. I don't put much stock in, in these comments of, that he's going to step down. Um, where's he going to go? That That's the question. Yeah. He, he, he needs to stay in power in order to stay alive, quite possibly. And so I, I think he has every intention of, of staying as long as he can. Mm-hmm. On, on the sanctions, uh, yes, good step. Um, I know there has been some criticism that the Belarus sovereign debt wasn't included, although, yes. frankly, I don't know that there's much activity on that front to begin with, because I think most investors and purchasers are scared off from from the sovereign debt in any event. Um, I think more Russians need to be added. Yes. Um, Yes. And that that I think is a key, uh, because without Russian support, Lukashenko would have would have been gone by now. Um, And and lastly, I would say, well, two two things. One is the executive order, I think, was very important. As we all know, there had not been one since 2006 that President Bush signed it. And so updating that executive order gives the administration more leeway and flexibility to impose additional sanctions. Uh, But then the last thing is we also need to let the Gulf countries know that they have a choice Mm -hmm. to make. Um, either you can be in bed with Lukashenko and therefore have bad relations with the United States, or you can have a divorce with Lukashenko and have a better relationship with the U.S. So my hope is that we will be sending a, a loud and clear message to our, our friends in the Gulf, particularly the UAE, and let them know that the, the gig is up. Yeah, on the sovereign debt piece, what I'm hearing is is Treasury, and you probably have a better window of this than, than I than I have given given your career. But my my what I'm hearing is Treasury is always skittish about sanctioning sovereign debt because they don't like to mess with anything to do with markets. Um, does that does that scan for you? Yes and no, because we we actually have done it with the Russian uh, mm-hmm. sovereign debt, both now on the secondary markets. And so there is precedent for it. And I frankly don't quite know what the holdup is. It's not as if we would be adversely affected by it. Um, I think any opportunity we have to cut off his funding sources, we should pursue and go after. And we shouldn't be holding things for the next time. Uh, We know there's going to be a next time. It's bad enough as it is already. And so we should be unloading as much as possible, as fast as possible before more people get hurt or killed. Yeah. And and on the Russians that you you would like to see sanctioned, the one I'm waiting for is German Greff. Um, when, when we sanction German Greff and Sperbank, which is extremely active in Belarus, um, then I'll know we'll, we've gotten serious because Greff plays this the, the role of this you know urbane westernized uh, financier. When basically I, I, I consider him an, you know, a mafia accountant for Putin, <laughs> I look at Greff, but he's well liked in the West. He's you know he's very urbane and very comfortable in like Davos circles. When I see Greff and Sperbank sanctioned, then I'll know that we are very serious about going after the Russian wallets. Before we move into the second half, when I want to kind of talk about the geopolitical implications of all of this, I do want to drill a little bit deeper with Franek into Belarusian society. Because I'm seeing some interesting changes right now. Um, I'm looking at some public opinion polling that is um, the one that really jumped out at me was when Belarusians were asked to name the historical period that they think should be an inspiration for modern Belarus today. What they chose were things like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and even the Belarusian Republic of, of, of 1918. Way down on the bottom of the list were all the time, and, and what's notable, all three of the all of those things were there's no Russia in that equation. Belarus had, had, was not part of anything Russian in those periods. Way down the bottom was the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. Um, Franek, how deep and enduring is this chain in real? Is this change in public opinion? Because, quite frankly, the stereotype before last August was that Belarusians were, you know, very pro-Russian, um, loved Putin, 
Um, and this was a, this was kind of a the, the the narrative that we all in the West kind of came to accept. Has something profound changed? There are some changes, but uh, there are not, these changes are not so profound. Uh, I think Belarusians are looking for their identity and this process of identity formation, nation building, it intensified in 2020 and then continues right now. Um, in Grant, uh, in in in, uh, in your question, um, you asked about Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Uh, this is because in the school program, Grand Duchy of Lithuania is presented as the press state of the Belarus. And even during Le Lukashenko's period, Lukashenko's era, Grand Duchy of Lithuania was still the state which, which uh, was presented as the something the Belarusians built their nation, their statehood first. The constitution of uh, Grand Duchy of Lithuania, first laws, um, uh, this parliamentarism, uh, it's still in the school books. Mm. Lukashenko was trying to erase, to clean the history school book somehow and to say that Belarusian history began after Second World War, but he failed. And um, this this narrative that Belarusian nation started in 1945, it failed and it didn't have support. Uh, so I think that's the, the first explanation. Second, uh, Belarusians were watching closely Ukraine. Mm. And after event 2013-14, this um, sympathy towards Belarusian medieval history, towards Belarusian language, it increased significantly, and this process never stopped. Perhaps in 2020, we just showed, uh, we, we saw signs, uh, the results of this process, but it started much, much, much earlier. And also the flags, you know, white, red, white flag, it's a historical Belarusian flag, which takes root from the Belarusian coat of arms, which also part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuanian history. And these flags were always treated and presented as the oppositional flags. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, in uh, 2020, when protests sparked, almost every family found in their, um, I don't know, Chulan, uh, in their, like, uh, archive, Padval, mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the white, red, white uh, mm -hmm. flag, and put this on the marches, which is quite spectacular. You know, this identity, Belarusianness, it was slipping somewhere in some, some, some consciousness of Belarusian nation, and 2020 just uh, created uh, the, the right space and uh, ecosystem uh, conditions for this uh, some consciousness to to show up. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, there was that incident with the mayor, the mayor of Riga, put, uh, hoisted that flag during the World Hockey Championships in um in in in, in Latvia. David, what can because this is this is really I think this is really important. I think historical narratives are extremely important. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I was studying what used to be called Soviet studies uh, back in back in the Middle Ages, um, I um uh, you know we learned a very Russocentric uh view of this and the historiography and, and everything has changed. I mean, largely due thanks to the Ukrainians, but now to the Belarusians, we're learning new narratives. And I'm, I mean, you teach at a university, I teach at a university, we're both kind of in the think tank space here. And how, how much responsibility do we have and how much harder do we have to push the real historical narrative of this part of the world, that these countries are not Russian lands, which is what the, what the, the old stereotype had them as. Um, the, the Belarus and Ukrainian are, 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 have deep ties to Europe, largely through the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and in Ukraine's case, the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Do we got to do a better idea, better job on this, uh, on, uh, on our side of getting this narrative out there? Because it is not the majority narrative out here. I think without question, we need to do a better job. And I think we need to push back when the narratives and, and plural, because there's a Belarus narrative, there's a Ukrainian narrative and so on, uh, when those narratives get distorted and twisted, as, as Putin has recently done in his several articles about uh, Ukraine in particular, but also with yeah. Belarus thrown into the mix as well. And uh, speaking of Putin, I think he actually deserves some uh, unintended credit for raising the levels of national identity in these countries. Um, it, it shouldn't take a, a neuroscientist to figure out that if you invade your neighbors, they're likely to resent that and to try to establish their own independence and sovereignty uh, from this invading outside force, which is Russia. We also need to be careful on, on terminology that we use. Uh, when we talk about uh, Soviet losses in World War yeah. II, 
Russia tries to dominate that narrative and portray that it was all Russians who were, were right. the victims of, of Nazi aggression, when in fact the, the population in Belarus suffered tremendous losses during World War II. Uh, same for, for Ukraine as well. So I think, I think there is a, a need to be more careful in, in the, our language, in our terminology, um, and there is a need to recognize the significant differences while also recognizing there is some some intersection and overlap here. But but the tremendous differences that I think are only growing as uh, Belarus and Ukraine, Georgia, uh, become victims of, of Putin's aggression. Yeah, no, this is I have this very much in my mind because I'm designing my a course called the post-Soviet environment in uh, for, for, for my UTA students. And I do want to like have a whole section on the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth um, because, quite frankly, a lot of people don't know that this thing ever existed. Um, and it's an important part of the, 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 the history and historical narratives of these countries. That's a good, uh, good, good uh, way to segue into the second part. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion. And look at how this year of change in Belarus has impacted the geopolitical calculations in Russia and in the West. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the great city of Miami in the great state of Florida is David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been president of Freedom House and a senior director at the McCain Institute. These days, David is a senior fellow and lecturer at the Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. And joining us from Oslo is veteran Belarusian journalist Ronak Pachorka, an advisor to Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovska, and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on I iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Now, I want to start this segment with a disclaimer. I, I do not like to view countries as chess pieces in a geopolitical game between Russia and the West. But that said, Belarus is strategically and geopolitically very, very important. All you need to do is look at a map to understand that. Uh, prior to August 2020, Geopolitically speaking, and I know, Frank, you disagree with me a bit on this, um, but but hear me out here. Belarus was in something of a state of limbo. Nobody was, I mean, I mean, outside actors, nobody was entirely happy with the situation, but nobody was entirely unhappy either. The West and these illusions David spoke about in the first half didn't like Lukashenko's record on human rights and democracy, but it was happy that he was keeping the Russians out at least militarily at least militarily. He was resisting Russian you know, r r Russian attempts to have a new air base in Belarus. He was not allowing a permanent Russian military presence on Belarusian territory. And this is no small thing. Um, a permanent Russian military presence in Belarus changes the security equation entirely for Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia, not to mention Ukraine. Um, Putin famously despises Lukashenko and would prefer a more pliant and manageable client, but seemed to be willing to live with him since he there was there was no there was no chance he could truly become an ally of the West. Now these calculations have changed entirely. Belarus is suddenly in play, and I, I with the caveat, I do not like looking at countries as being in play or being chess pieces on on a chessboard. But Belarus has become more contested space than it was uh, previously. Russia clearly sees an opportunity right now to bring Belarus even closer into its orbit, and is quickly expanding its military political and economic footprint in, in, in Belarus. I've been writing about this on a weekly basis for the Atlantic Council. I think I've written that line probably a hundred times in the last the last several months because it is happening. 
The economic footprint is expanding before our eyes. The military footprint is expanding before our eyes. There's a de facto permanent Russian presence right now due to the continuous military exercises that Russia and Belarus are doing. Zop in 2021 is coming up next month, and all eyes are going to be on that. The West, for its part, as David said in the first half correctly, has abandoned any illusions about driving a wedge between Lukashenko and Putin and instead appears to be playing a long game by embracing Belarusian civil society. David, Uncle Sam used to pay you to keep an eye on this part of the world. How do you see this geopolitical field right now? Well, last September, uh, the then Deputy Secretary of State Steve Began and the Deputy Assistant Secretary George Kent went to Moscow to try to talk with Russian officials about the situation in Belarus. And I give them credit for trying, but they got nowhere. Um, at the end of the day, Putin doesn't want to see a like-minded dictator fall from power. And while he, you're absolutely right, Brian, he and, and Lukashenko don't, don't get along. They have been meeting pretty regularly I, these I days. And Russia continues to provide the financial lifeline to keep Lukashenko in power. So I, I think we, we have to recognize that we in, in Moscow are not going to see eye to eye on this situation. And therefore, it's probably more useful for us while keeping an eye on what the Kremlin is up to to look at Belarus through the prism of Belarus, not through mm -hmm. the prism of Russia. And frankly, that's how we should approach all the countries in the region, through the, through their own right, their own prism, not through a Russia prism. Um, and, and so you mentioned the Zapad exercise. I think that is of, of great concern uh, with what might be left behind uh, in Belarus after that exercise is over. But let's also keep an eye on what Lukashenko, with I have to conclude Putin's connivance, is doing to Lithuania uh, yes. with the weaponization of migrants into Lithuania to try to destabilize a fellow NATO ally. Yeah. So, so this is becoming a more regional, if not an international issue, whether we want it to or not. And I think we have to recognize that, as I mentioned, Lithuania is a NATO ally. We have to come to their help yeah. and, and support uh, in these very trying times. Yeah. Do you? Th what should we be doing that we're not doing there? To to be given the escalated threat that that that, that is clearly visible right now. Well, I, I think we have started to do this, and I think the Europeans are as well, and that is to talk to Iraqi leaders and explain to them that these flights going from Iraq to Minsk directly are producing an extremely mm. negative uh, effect on the situation in Lithuania, which has done heroic, uh, heroic job in supporting the democratic forces of, of uh, Belarus, including uh, Svetlana and Franek and others. Um, and so we, we need to talk to other countries where these migrants are coming from. And I think we have to recognize that Lithuania needs some border support. Uh, the EU has been talking about doing that. It has had meetings on that. Um, but Lithuania is in a crisis and I think is is very nervous about what's going on. I know Franek is based there these days, even though he's in Oslo today. Uh, but he and he has a clearer sense of the sense of urgency the Lithuanians are, are feeling. And, and I think there is a concern that the United States is not paying enough attention mm. to this. And I think we have to show uh, more solidarity with our Lithuanian friends. Frank, how does this look from 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 Vilnius, where you where you are normally based when you're not traveling around the world? <laughs> yeah, Lithuanians are paying very big price right now. And uh, Lithuanians conduct uh, something which we call values based policy. Uh, they lose a lot. They risk a lot. Uh, but they, they want to show the example and be a model for the entire world. And Gabrielus Landsbergis and the whole government of Ingrida Shimonita, they are uh, very brave and they're, you know, constantly repeating the same messages. Um, even when they're criticized by their political opponents, they are still stick with their policy yeah. they defined in the very beginning. It's it's quite amazing. Uh, I don't know how we Belarusians can help them. Perhaps in the future, after democratic changes, <laughs> we will somehow pay back. But you know, even that statement of Gabrielus Landsbergis a few days ago that they are ready to stop the transit of Lukashenko's potash through the territory of Lithuania, it will bring huge losses for Lithuania. Yeah. But we understand it's them. Uh, it's something that they should do, they must do, and they understand the, the, the scale of possible losses. Uh, we know that uh, Lukashenko doesn't want to stop with migrants. Of course, he used uh, this as the revenge, but also as the um, uh, tool of blackmail uh, against the EU. Uh, 
um, we heard that they're going to lift visas for Pakistani and uh, they're going to bring people from Lebanon and from Pakistan to Belarus and then send them to, to Poland, Lithuania and Latvia. So it would be very important to collaborate and to help Lithuania, of course, mm. first of all, other other countries, uh, but also to work with Turkey, which um, uh, which which um, Istanbul airport is used for transiting all these passengers. So we know that Iraq agreed to collaborate, but uh, most of the flies are, are happening not from Baghdad. But, but from Istanbul. And uh, it's very possible that in the very, very nearest future, um, actually, Istanbul flights will be full of migrants uh, mm. sent later to, to borders of the EU. Mm. Yeah, no, we can all learn a lot from the Lithuanians, from their, their from their moral clarity. We should we should listen to them more. To set up the, the last bit of things I want to talk about, I want to quote from a recent article by our common friend Konstantin Eggert um, at Deutsche Welle. He writes on the one year anniversary of the of the flawed election that 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 set off this crisis. He writes, and I quote: "Putin need not repeat his 2014 Crimean operation to gain full control of Belarus. Minsk agreeing to host Russian military bases, as well as adopting the ruble." as its national currency would suffice. That would make Putin master of the Belarusian economy, enabling the subsequent takeover of its most valuable assets by the by Kremlin-selected Russian companies, as well as providing a bridgehead allowing Russia to simultaneously face off against Ukraine to the south and NATO member Poland to the west. When a democratic revolution in Belarus started a year ago, few imagined that Lukashenko's ruthlessness, Putin's money, and their combined security agencies would tip the scales so hard that the country's existence would ultimately hang in the balance. Franek, do you worry about this? Do you worry that the current crisis could lead to Belarus losing its sovereignty to Russia fully or becoming an even more dependent client state? Does this, does this concern you? Uh, it concerns me, it concerns me, but it's not something that must change our policy, change our dedication. This is not something which must stop us from doing, because this is also a narrative which is amplified by Lukashenko, saying, look, you should stop protesting, otherwise Belarus will lose its sovereignty. Lukashenko wants to look like the guarantor of sovereignty, being at the same time the main threat Mm. and the main risk for the sovereignty. Um, of course, uh, we are repeating all the time during all meetings that uh, sovereignty, independence of Belarus is not for trade. But more uh, of that, we, we see that Belarusian population doesn't want to and will not accept any, um, any bargains here. Uh, all the public opinion surveys uh, show that independence uh, is the value number one for absolute majority of Belarusians. Belarus population is very homogenic in contrast to Ukraine, for example, mm -hmm. and there is no village in Belarus which will meet uh, um, Russian troops with flowers. Uh, hopefully it will not happen, but, but again, it's... Um, I think, you know, the, the Western politicians are afraid of, of uh, Kremlin's invasion to Belarus much more than Belarusians themselves. Yeah, I'm, I'm not worried about an invasion. I am worried about kind of the frog boiling in the water scenario, right, it, 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 where, you, where you don't notice it until it's too late. I mean, I think Putin is playing a, a very devious but clever game right now. He is pushing Lukashenko to do a constitution, so-called constitutional reform. Right. That reform, that so-called reform would result in a more empowered Belarusian parliament and a less powerful presidency. Now, that to those of us in the West, like David and I, we look at that on the surface and say, yeah, it's a good idea. Right. Until you look below the hood a little bit. And what Russia is trying to do here, and they are carefully putting the pieces in place to have media and political parties and financial interests and social media all kind of geared to making sure Russia controls that newly empowered parliament. I think this is their this is their long game. And I've been thinking about this a lot and thinking about it in terms of what should and could we be doing here in the West given this situation. And one one idea I, I, I've been thinking about is like maybe we can play on that field. I mean, maybe you can play on that field. Once you do that, I mean, yeah, Russia's got a lot of assets on the ground in Belarus, but Given the changes in society, given the emboldened civil society, given the kind of newly empowered uh, op opposition, given the Western solidarity right now, perhaps we can play on that field. And I I'm thinking of what happened in Moldova recently, 
um, where where it seems to me Russia in the West, there was no written agreement. It was certainly never announced, seemed to agree to get rid of Vlad Plahotniuk, you know, this oligarch who pretended to be pro-Western but was really playing footsie with the Russians as well, um, and remove him from the scene and then just let's fight it out. And when we fought it out, guess what? The pro-Western Maya Sandu won the presidency and her party, won, won control of the parliament. So, David, do you, can we play this constitutional reform game that Putin is playing and, and maybe pull a little jujitsu on him here? I don't think so. Um, let's also remember that in Moldova, the Russians didn't back uh, Igor Dodon to the hilt, um, and they let him fall as well. So it shows that there are some limits on their ability to influence the outcomes in these countries. I, the, the reason I, I'm skeptical about this is um, I, I, I think Lukashenko is going to show Putin that he is not a trustworthy interlocutor, um, that Lukashenko at the end of the day has no interest in any of this constitutional reform. No, he doesn't. needs to stay at the top of the leadership in, in Belarus, while at the same time he's becoming increasingly reliant on Russian support to stay in power. And so I think actually what the West needs to do is to uh, inform the people of Belarus, and I think they already know this fairly well, but I think even more can be done, inform the people of Belarus that the reason Lukashenko is still there is because of Moscow. Uh, it's because of Russian support. And, and that also might send a signal to those in the Kremlin who worry that a heavy hand from the Russian side is likely to alienate a population that had been neutral, if not even somewhat positively disposed mm -hmm. toward Russia, um, into thinking that our life is miserable because of Putin's support. And I think that's a message that we need to convey much more strongly. I, I, I don't I don't buy any of the games on the constitutional reform, any of that. I, I, I don't think that will wind up going anywhere. I think the West needs to point to the Kremlin as the reason Lukashenko is still there. And then we also need to make clear that any positive democratic future for Belarus does not include Lukashenko in the picture. Mm -hmm. um, and I think ramping up the pressure, doing more sanctions, going after more wallets or money bags, however, whatever term you want to use that include Russians and include people in the Gulf, uh, that's what we need to do in order to force him out so that mm -hmm. the people of Belarus can actually determine their own future uh, without uh, either Lukashenko involved or Putin trying to call the shots. Franek, what do you how do how how do you see this? I, I tend to agree with David. Lukash, Lukashenko is dragging his feet on the so-called constitutional reform. The Russians are pushing it hard. Um, I, if I had to guess, I'd say it's probably not going to happen. But let's, for the sake of argument, say it does happen. Could your side play? Could Svetlana play on that field? Do you, do you, do you, how 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 would you see that? Uh, we'll use all possible uh, events in order to mobilize society. Of course. No matter what Lukashenko announces, we will use it either to boycott, either to say no, either to observe these elections and to count votes as we did last year in 2020. Uh, it's very likely that Lukashenko will announce constitution uh, referendum or whatever, but um, uh, we will not be participating with alternative project more likely. What we have to do, we have to use this as opportunity opportunity to mobilize society for the protest. This is what we will definitely do. Uh, Lukashenko is uh, very fragile right now, as you could see, and we expect the announcement of the referendum perhaps in September, um, perhaps in October, uh, this could be combined with the release of some political prisoner mm -hmm. and sent uh, to the West as the concession, as the step forward to normalization. We should be also very careful here and to not Lukashenko to, to bluff again and to, to uh, manipulate the West. So this is why we, we mm -hmm. constantly repeat at all the meetings. Lukashenko might create illusion of the concessions and changes and reforms, but until all the people are released, and rehabilitated, and elections are announced, planned, and scheduled um, under international observation, we can't make any deals mm -hmm. of Lukashenko, and no trust to his words. We're bumping up against the end. I want to give you both one last opportunity to to to, to wrap up your to kind of give your final thoughts on this this year of living dangerously in Belarus and where it may be going, David. Um, I, I would just salute um, Franek and Svetlana Siknovskaya and Valery Kavalevsky and, and all the 
activists in and out of Belarus who remain determined, are relentless in their pursuit of a better future for their country. As I said, they're, they're an inspiration not only for their fellow citizens, but they're an inspiration for all democracy fighters around the world. They are facing enormous odds and huge threats and risks. And for them to continue to do what they're doing, um, I think takes tremendous courage. And so I just want to salute uh, Franek here on the screen and everyone else who's involved in the effort. Yeah, and I, I would I would second that enthusiastically. Franek, last words to you. Um, thank you, David, and thank you, Brian. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, no one, no one expected such development. No one expected um, all these things will happen uh, in 2020 and this year as well. I think we we made uh, all together a tremendous job and on building uh, sovereign Belarus state and empowering Belarus nation. I think we are much closer to the victory and to democratic Belarus uh, we we were ever before. And I think we are in the perfect uh, situation right now to mobilize international community in order to help us. Because at this point of this of this fight, international community can do much more than perhaps anyone could expect. And uh, I think that this this message, uh, Svetlana Tikhanovska is often um, saying at the political meetings uh, that Belarus unites, it's very relevant. Because everywhere in, in Washington, Democrats and Republicans, uh, all parties in London, uh, Paris and Berlin, all of them are meeting Svetlana. And this is perhaps the only topic which unites many different forces. And I think this also good um, good sign that um, Belarus will become success story. Yeah, no, the, uh, the, 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 the seeing Democratic and Republican uh, members of Congress together at the Lithuanian, at the wonderful Lithuanian embassy right down the street from my, my home here in Washington really, really warmed my heart during, during your visit. And that is a nice optimistic note to wrap it up on. So that's all we have time for today. And I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the great city of Miami in the great state of Florida has been David Kramer, who serves as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked in Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been President of Freedom House and a Senior Director at McCain Institute. These days, David's a Senior Fellow and Lecturer at the Florida International University, Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. Joining me from Oslo has been veteran Belarusian journalist Franek Vachorka, an advisor to Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Fikhanovskaya, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you, gentlemen, for an enlightening conversation. Thanks very much for having us. And best wishes. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad, who handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 